This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In recent years, a number of highly visible evangelicals have left the Protestant faith and have converted to Roman Catholicism. Why? Well, the problems in the evangelical world are many. For some, one of the great problems is the lack of any organizing authority in evangelicalism. In contrast to the chaos of the contemporary evangelical world, some apologists for Roman Catholicism present the Roman communion as the continuation of the early church, where, they say, there was a great unity to the visible church, which was organized around the Bishop of Rome. In this episode of Office Hours, we're tackling the question, why do evangelicals find Rome so attractive. Joining us on Office Hours today is W. Robert Godfrey, professor of church history and president of Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim, and Pastor, and Reformation Sketches. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Great to be here with you. Well, we have an important question that I have received in a variety of ways over the last few years, but one that seems to be coming with increasing frequency, and this one comes from Tim, who was a pastor in north-central California. Concerning Roman Catholicism and, and why its paradigm is persuading people, I really hardly know where to begin. What I long to be able to speak more clearly about, and thus where you can perhaps help me, is the matter of God's way of working in the first season of centuries after the passing of the apostles themselves. There seems to be an extended time in which the people of Christian faith, at least at attempted to operate in some form of organizational unity. And while it really seems to me that we need not define that in Roman terms, how can we best talk about the nature and the operation of authority through elder overseers over the course, let's say, of the first five centuries or so? What's the best way to assess the extent and the impact of particular errors in the life of the church as it relates to a genuine but not infallible rule? without saying that something fundamental to the gospel itself was lost to the whole Christian world. How do we positively narrate an authentic history from a sola scriptura point of view? Tim raises a number of fundamental and important questions that Protestants need to face openly and honestly. First, Bob, let's start with the Reformation itself. Why was there a Reformation? There was a Reformation because the Spirit of God opened the eyes of some very talented well-educated men to recapture a knowledge of the Bible and to see that what the church was teaching and doing in the 16th century was not what the Bible described Christianity as being. And so they saw the need to reform the church according to the Word of God. That's the full expression of what it means to be reformed, to want to reform the church according to the Word of God. Sometimes people talk about the material principle of the Reformation, and sometimes people talk about the formal principle. What are those quickly? Well, the formal principle of Reformation is that the Bible is the only reliable source of religious knowledge. And so uh, the the Bible must give form to all of our thinking, all give content to all of our thinking. The material principle of the Reformation was justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The, the core issue of salvation had to be clarified in terms of the saving work of Christ received by faith alone. So we articulate those traditionally with the slogans, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. It's the unique norm and authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life 
and sola gratia and sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone, right. in, in Christ alone. And so those convictions distinguished us from the Roman communion, which articulated a different principle of authority. What, what is the Roman principle of authority? Well, traditionally, Rome has talked about the Bible and tradition being authorities. Uh, Different Roman theologians have related the Bible and tradition somewhat differently to one another. But those two have, in somewhat formal terms, been the uh, authority of the Roman Church. Although in practice, the authority of the Roman Church is really the magisterium, that is the teaching authority of the Church itself. So the real authority in the Roman Church is the Pope's decision about what the Bible says and the Pope's decision about what tradition is. When a 19th century pope was challenged about how you could know what tradition really taught, his response was, I am tradition. And that points to the functional authority in the Roman church of being the pope himself. All right. So you have ultimately ecclesiastical authority in Rome trumps biblical authority. And at least since the Council of Trent, Rome has confessed particular views relative to sola gratia and sola fide. What does Rome say? Well, basically, Rome says that faith alone, as Rome understands faith alone, is simply a perfection of the intellect, is a perfection of knowledge, and that that cannot be saving. We are not saved by knowledge. Up to that point, we would agree with Rome. But Rome then says faith has to be given life by love. And so it's the love joined to faith that is actually saving. And of course, when you think of love in those terms, what you're really talking about is a moral transformation of the individual. What we call sanctification. Exactly. We believe in moral renewal. Uh, We believe that moral renewal will inevitably take place in the life of the true Christian. But it's not moral renewal that makes me acceptable to God. It's what Christ has done outside of me, for me, that makes me acceptable to God. And that's why we say we receive that perfect righteousness of Christ. Christ by faith alone. And by faith, we mean a knowledge, knowing the faith, the basics of the faith, assent, agreeing to the truth of them, and trust, believing that these things are not only true historically and intellectually, but they are true for me and placing one's confidence and hope in Christ in his finished work. You are well catechized. I'm impressed. <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay. So that's those are the Reformation basics. You're listening to, You're listening office, to hours office Hours from hours. Westminster Seminary, California. Here we are now in a situation where evangelicals are coming into renewed contact, not only with Rome and with Eastern Orthodoxy, which is a whole other episode of Office Hours, but also coming into contact with the ancient church in a renewed way. And that's happening through a variety of media and a variety of avenues. But as evangelicals and other Protestants are coming into contact with the early church, the assumption is being made that the only way to be faithful to the teaching of the early post-apostolic church of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and perhaps 5th centuries is to identify with and align oneself with and unite oneself with the Roman communion. Presumably, you disagree with that. Why? Well, I disagree with it on several different levels. You know, I think there has for a long time been an attitude in the evangelical Protestant world that it is just self-evident that Roman Catholics are wrong and we're right. That has, I think, left many Protestants rather complacent about the challenge that Rome can pose to us. I always think back to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where Pilgrim is walking along and he is initially terrified by two giants, one named Pagan and one named Pope. But then he realizes Pagan is dead and Pope is nearly dead. Well, Bunyan was wildly overly optimistic. It turns out now on both counts, neither pagan nor pope were dead. But as a result of that complacency, I think often Protestants don't really understand Rome 
don't understand its teachings and uh, are somewhat inclined then to caricature those teachings, leaving themselves open for Roman Catholics to respond, no, that's not right. That's not what we teach. If you say Rome doesn't believe we're saved by grace, it's easy for Rome to say, of course we believe we're saved by grace. If you say Rome doesn't believe we're saved by faith, it's easy for Rome to respond, of course we believe we're saved by faith. The issue is, do we have a sophisticated enough understanding of theology to recognize the difference between saying we're saved by grace and saying we're saved by grace alone, to understand the difference between saying we're saved by faith and saying we're saved by faith alone, to say we're saved by Christ and say we're saved by Christ alone. That's where the issues get, and it can become pretty complicated. There's a renewed and somewhat aggressive movement among evangelicals who have converted to Roman Catholicism to reach back into various Protestant and evangelical circles to recruit and say, come back to Rome, sweet home. Why shouldn't evangelicals do that? Isn't Rome the continuous representation of the teaching of the early church, the first four or five centuries of the post-apostolic church? No, it's not. Why not? And that really is a misrepresentation, I think, of historical reality. Well, didn't they all agree? And didn't they pretty much uh, agree that the Bishop of Rome was the vicar of Christ on the earth and wasn't a glorious, wonderful consensus that existed from the early second century until the 16th century disrupted by a contumacious, avaricious, lusty monk from Germany? I think you've persuaded me. No, uh, <laughs> that is not the reality of the history of the church. That when story one studies gets told quite That a story lot. gets told all the time. I'm always struck when something's going on at the Vatican and there are, are reporters there from America covering it and the cameras are playing over the magnificent buildings of the 16th and 17th century there. And some American reporter says, well, we're here witnessing the continuation of what has been going on for 2,000 years. And I think, that's just not true. That's just <laughs> not true. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Has there been a bishop in Rome for almost 2,000 years? Yes, there has been. That's true. But that's not the same as saying there has been a bishop in Rome who uh, has been recognized by the whole church as the immediate successor of Peter and having full teaching authority and the promise of infallibility from Jesus at the beginning. Those are two very different realities that we have to be clear about. So how did the bishop of Rome become the pope? Well, it's a long story. How long have you got? (laughs) Well, it takes me about six weeks to tell that story in in the medieval reformation course. Yes, people always want a quick answer, and uh, it doesn't always work. But we can say briefly that by about the year 150, wherever the church had spread, it organized itself with bishops leading the congregations of the churches. Now, part of what's hard in telling this story is that we use words today that we think mean the same thing when we read them from the second or third century. Uh, And so we hear the word bishop, well, we know what a bishop is, don't we? It's an administrative ecclesiastical figure uh, who has some pastoral responsibilities over a lot of clergy and a lot of congregations. Well, that's not at all what a bishop was in the second century. The best real comparison for what a bishop was in the second century with today would be to describe him as a senior pastor. He's the leading pastor in a congregation. His primary responsibility is preaching. He's not primarily administrative, and the kind of authority he has comes from the Word of God, just as most senior pastors in good churches today uh, would recognize their authority to come from the Word of God and from the faithful teaching of the Word of God. So, you know, when was the last time you heard the Pope preach? You know, that's just not a function. He does some teaching, but the notion of 
preaching as the primary work of, of bishops is just not something we think about today because there's been this massive evolution and radical change from what the church was to what it's become. And there's some significant evidence of a plurality of elders in the second century, and there are good arguments to say that there were a variety of polities, that not every church in every place was necessarily organized along Episcopal lines. I don't think when you look in the second century, even though you have these office bearers called bishops, that that means you should think that the church thinks of itself in what we would call Episcopal terms. I think most Christians thought in what would be much closer actually to congregationalist terms in those days. There are different congregations led by bishops. Those bishops have different kinds of relationships with one another, but certainly each thinks he has a kind of autonomy in the running of his own local church. That's much more a um, congregationalist way of seeing the church than what we think of as an Episcopal or certainly a, a Roman monarchical notion of the church. Today, when we think of the Roman Catholic Church, we think of an entity with a highly developed sacramental system with seven sacraments. In the second century, how many sacraments did the church have? Well, in all likelihood, they had just two, the dominical sacraments. The exact evolution of Christian life experience and even theology in the second century is difficult to trace because the historical record is not as abundant as it would become in later centuries. So we have a, a more limited witness, more limited number of documents that don't always tell us all the things we'd like to know or don't always tell them as clearly as we'd like. They don't, they're not always answering our questions. But it's clear when you study the history of the church that the development of other activities that came to be known as sacramental developed over time and don't have a clear witness in the earliest part of the life of the church. And in truth, as late as the ninth century, the only two sacraments that most Western theologians knew were baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there's, at least as I read the second, third, fourth centuries, I see no unequivocal, clear, definite evidence that anyone believed that it was possible to change the substance of, let's say, the elements of the Lord's Supper into the body and blood of Christ in the way that it came to be thought beginning in the ninth century and then developing through the 13th and 14th centuries. As Roman Catholic historians and theologians go back in the ancient church period, they can lift sentences out of the writings of certain fathers that seem to be pointing in the same direction that their widely articulated theology develops in the Middle Ages. But you have to recognize that's just a sentence, and often it's taken out of context. One of my favorite examples is Chrysostom in the early 5th century. Uh, at one point says, we offer on the altar the sacrifice of Christ, and then he goes on to say, or the memorial of the sacrifice of Christ. And of course, what we want to say centuries later is, well, which is it? Is it a sacrifice or is it a memorial of a sacrifice? You can't have it both ways. Well, he's not living in a world where he necessarily had to make that kind of distinction, but it's rather clear that if he can say it's the sacrifice or the memorial of the sacrifice, that's not a hill he's willing to die on, as if there's only one right answer to that question. And the conceptual framework in which the doctrine of transubstantiation developed doesn't exist in the second century or even the third century in the right. church. That isn't going to happen for three or four hundred years at least. It's not even going to be possible for another three or four hundred years for people to make the kinds of distinctions that are necessary. And most all scholars are agreed that the greatest ancient doctor of the Western Church, Augustine, in fact held a view of the relationship of the elements to the body and blood of Christ very similar to that of John Calvin's. So this notion of a kind of unbroken testimony theologically, either to the authority of the Roman Church or the theology of the Roman Church from the ancient church is just wrong. 
What about baptism? I'm for it. <laughs> well, that's good. But how do we assess the testimony of the early church on baptism? Because that's another claim that's often made, that the early church believed in effectively what became the Roman doctrine of baptism by the working of it. It works. So a baptismal efficacy or baptismal regeneration. How do you read the early church on baptism? Once again, I think the early church, following the Bible, did indeed see baptism as very important, a wonderful and powerful witness and work of God. And I think to some extent, many in the evangelical world have taken baptism too lightly and haven't really plumbed the depths of biblical teaching on baptism. So there are strong statements about the power and significance of baptism in the ancient church. But it's very interesting. One might almost have thought if the Roman position is true, one might have expected that the water of baptism would miraculously change into the blood of Christ to wash away sins. Nobody, not even Rome today, argues that. So the notion that baptism works magically or automatically may well be present in some kinds of popular piety in the late ancient church period, but it's not the theological position being taken by many theologians in the ancient church period. And so one of the more interesting facts of which everyone may not be aware is that there's a considerable degree of diversity in the ancient church. Absolutely. Which makes it difficult then to paint the picture of the kind of consensus and unbroken unity that is necessary for the kinds of arguments that are being made by Roman apologists to evangelicals. The clearest and hugest, most obvious example of that is that you have uh, this large Christian body, the Orthodox churches, which uh, can claim every bit as much antiquity as Rome can claim, rejecting Rome's claims of authority over them. And that rejection has been present through the ancient church period down till today. So Rome has no monopoly on a claim of the ancient history of the church. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Is it too much to say that Rome is every bit as much a product of the 16th century as the Reformation churches, and that the Reformation churches have just as much claim on the ancient church as the Roman communion does? I think that is right. I think Rome obviously had been evolving over centuries to the position which it found itself in the 16th century, and the Council of Trent helped canonize those developments over centuries in a way they had never been canonized before. But I think it's absolutely right that Protestants, Reformed Protestants, in particular, can make as strong an appeal to the ancient church as Rome can. Let me offer one small example. For the first at least three centuries, probably even for the first four centuries, every ancient church theologian opposed the use of images to represent God or Christ. And yet today, Rome has images galore of Christ. Well, if the ancient church is in some sense our authority, then Rome has deviated from the ancient church and the Reformed stand with the ancient church on that point. I often encourage people to walk into a Roman Catholic church 
briefly, and look around and realize that almost everything that is central to the life and experience of that Roman Catholic congregation at worship and in devotion would have been foreign to the first three, four, five centuries of the ancient church. The role of the Virgin Mary, the role of the saints, the role of images, uh, even the role of the altar are things that are... The organ? Certainly the organ. As far as we know, no musical instruments were used in Christian public worship till around 1,000. The whole structure of a Roman Catholic church has become a recreation of the Old Testament temple. You have the holy place and the most holy place. You have the altar. You have sacrifices. You have priests. All of that's foreign to the New Testament. And to be sure, it gradually evolved by the late ancient period. A number of these things were beginning to be present, but uh, this is a long evolution of which Rome, in a sense, is a kind of snapshot. And there's a polemical sleight of hand, a historical sleight of hand, when the suggestion is made that contemporary Roman Catholic theology, piety, and practice can be transposed onto the ancient church. In all fairness, there are lots of Roman Catholic scholars, serious scholars, historians, who would recognize that immediately. We're talking about popularizers and polemicists and evangelical converts who are seeking to persuade evangelicals that if they're tired of the uncertainty and the stability of the contemporary evangelical life, that they can find what they're seeking in Rome's sweet home. Most serious academic Roman Catholic scholars have come to recognize, beginning in the 19th century on into the 20th, that their notion of tradition just doesn't work. They cannot claim as tradition apostolic practices that were passed on orally to the church and not written down. That's what they used to say. They've come to recognize that so many of their traditions cannot be taken back anywhere close to apostolic practice. And so they've come up with this notion of a kind of evolving tradition. Well, the seeds of these things were there in the beginning, but they had to grow. They had to develop. Some of those seeds were exceedingly small. And... um, (laughs) Hard to find. Hard to find. You know, and I don't want to trivialize this because we don't want to fall back into that sort of Protestant triumphalism and complacency because Rome does pose a really serious intellectual threat that I think in our time becomes more appealing. You know, I think a lot of evangelicals are sort of fed up with the modern world. They're fed up with the triviality of a lot of evangelical church life and particularly evangelical worship. They're looking for something more serious. They're looking for some kind of escape from this crass, modern, postmodern world. And Rome seems to offer that. They're tired of the fragmentation of Protestants. If the Bible, they say, is such a clear authority, why do none of us agree about what it says? Let me go back to something unified and something that claims this antiquity of truth. That becomes very emotionally appealing. And relative to congregations where shine Jesus shine is now a traditional hymn, to walk into a Roman Catholic cathedral or an older church may actually actually seem like you're entering real ancient Christianity. Except that you have to be somewhat careful because you can find plenty of Roman congregations that are probably singing Shine, Jesus, Shine. But yes, it can have that sense of the holy. I mean, that's part of what a temple always accomplishes, that you have a sense of the holy presence of God in the place from the very architecture. That's a whole nother discussion, probably. But that whole notion that churches should be temples is very problematic and very contrary, it seems to me, to the New Testament. Particularly the book of Hebrews, it would. Particularly the book of Hebrews, exactly. Now, Tim asked a somewhat difficult question, and this is where I want to focus towards the end of our discussion. Do we find in the ancient church a Rome-like view of justification? And if so, how do we narrate a history of the ancient church that doesn't suggest that, as he says, something fundamental to the gospel itself was lost? 
Well, I think it is true that it is hard to find in most of the ancient church a clear articulation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone the way Luther articulated it. It wasn't an issue in the same way. What you do have in the ancient church, for example, in the time of Augustine and after, is a struggle over the question, are we saved by grace alone? And in a certain sense, I think we can argue that the Reformation stress upon faith alone is the Reformation's effort to clarify exactly what we mean by grace alone. One can argue that grace alone changes us into being better moral beings so that we're acceptable to God. And in fact, it might not be too much to say that that's what's preached in a fair number of evangelical churches today. My feeling about that is, it's sort of what Romans 4, verse 16, I think it is, says, it is by faith that it might be by grace. A right understanding of faith is what gives stability to a right understanding of grace and points us to Christ and Christ alone. The ancient church wasn't always good at that. A lot of the history of the church isn't always good at that. Not always all Protestants are always good at that. And what I want to say is, we are not ultimately saved by a doctrine We are saved by resting in Christ alone and his grace alone as our only hope. If you're doing that, then you're using the doctrine of faith alone, even if you can't articulate it. And the ancient church wasn't always perfect in articulating it, but the ancient church resonated in many of its parts with Augustine when they came to see, yes, we have to say it's grace alone, it's Christ alone, it's not us, it's him that is saving. If one does not find repeated clear articulations of 16th century Protestant doctrine of justification, it's also the case that one does not find clear repeated articulations of the Tridentine, that is the doctrine articulated at Trent, that you're justified through grace conferred in baptism and the rest of the sacramental system and cooperation with grace. So the progressive system of justification. So a lot of the testimony of the early church is ambiguous. Because, in fact, they're not really, as you said, not really thinking about this, not really talking about this. But one does find here and there scattered affirmations read in context now, not cherry-picked. Right. Where there do seem to be at least something like affirmations of what we would understand to be justification by grace alone through faith alone. So— One of the great questions the church faced in the 16th century was the Protestant churches faced. Where was your church before Luther? So, Godfrey, where was your church before Luther? Well, I think the Reformers themselves believed that within their own heritage, which for centuries had been the Catholic Church of the West, that there had remained a testimony to the truth and a true presentation of the gospel. You can find through the whole of the Middle Ages, genuinely Augustinian theologians teaching an Augustinian doctrine of grace alone. Now, again, you have to make some distinction between the official theology or the professional theology of the church and practical piety. Part of the problem with Roman Catholicism to this day, in my judgment, is that while you have some better theological statements, on the local level, Rome is willing to tolerate and apparently even encourage a remarkable level of self-justification. And you found that in the Middle Ages as well. So we always have this problem. All religious groups have the problem of what is the relationship of popular piety and popular understanding to the official teachings of the church. Rome's official teachings since 
Trent are wrong, but the popular piety is even worse. And so the impression left to many people in the Roman Catholic pews is it's up to you. What are you doing? How holy are you? Because only by achieving a certain level of holiness do you have any hope of getting to God. You're left with this feeling in an awful lot of Roman religion that Christ has done his bit. Now it's all up to you whether it becomes effectual or not. And there are some Protestants who think that too. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So there was this tremendous consensus on Reformation basics, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone in their respective offices. And that consensus withstood a fair amount of resistance and criticism through the 17th century, 18th century, and at least in North America in the 19th century. But beginning in the 20th century, well, even beginning in the 19th century, you could see cracks in the Protestant edifice and people beginning to return, in some sense, to Roman Catholicism in two major movements, uh, the Oxford movement in the UK and in some aspects, some parts of the Mercersburg movement in the 19th century in North America. And there's been a renewed interest among evangelicals since the second half of the 20th century in uh, Roman Catholicism. Why is that happening? I'm getting more questions. What do I do about my son, my daughter, my brother, my neighbor, my friend, my co-worker, member of my congregation who has recently joined the Roman Catholic Church? How do we account for that? Well, I think sometimes people are fatigued with the fighting over doctrine that takes place in Protestant churches, and they sort of think, well, you know, if I join the Roman Catholic Church, it's really up to the Pope and the bishops to know what's true, and I just experience. Some people are very drawn to the Mass. I don't get it myself. I don't feel the emotional draw of the Mass. But for some people, the ritual of the altar is profoundly moving. They really believe the priest is going to make God present, Christ is going to be sacrificed, and they find this powerful spiritually. So there are a number of draws that way. But what we have to bear in mind is that the ancient church faced its theological struggles and its theological energy was largely given to the question of how is Jesus divine and how is Jesus human? And on the question of how is Jesus divine, it led to the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. On the question of how is Jesus human, it led to an understanding of how he had two natures in one person. That is, to some extent, taken for granted by us. It was a huge accomplishment in the context context of all sorts of theological struggle. And it's not surprising then that they were not able to answer all the questions subsequent generations of Christians might have for them. They did a fantastic theological work. And many people at the time said, well, why are you being so fussy about this theology? Why are you being so precise about it? Does it really matter exactly what the relationship of the Father and the Son is? And the ancient church said, yes, it really matters. Otherwise, we don't have a final salvation. So we need to be careful in recognizing that the Lord at different times in the history of his church has led the church to face issues with a clarity it had never faced before. And the great question is, what is Bible religion like? And when you look into the Bible, what you find, there's a great deal of attention to Christ and to his work. There's a great deal of attention to grace. And there is indeed attention on how Christians are to be holier, but that's all a consequence of what Christ has done in a definitive way for us. Something I think evangelicals who are tempted to become Roman Catholics ought to consider is the story of John Henry Newman. Very interesting volume that came out last year, Newman's Unquiet Grave, The Reluctant Saint. It's by John Cornwell. And it's the biography of Newman's conversion. And for me, as a confessional Protestant, one of the things I found most striking was the enthusiasm with which a naive, broadly evangelical Newman 
became a Roman Catholic and the assumptions he had, the expectations he had, the hopes he had, and the very significant disappointment he experienced when he became a Roman Catholic. I'm not sure how far we can go with this, but talk for a minute about the reality of becoming a Roman Catholic. Because from the outside, it may look mysterious and in some instances attractive and glorious, but the reality that Newman found was very different. And Cornwall was quite honest in chronicling his discontent. And one has to think from some of the letters that Newman wrote that he was fairly seriously considering whether he had made a huge mistake. I think that's right. I think part of what is attractive about Rome is its apparent holiness. And I think what one finds when one gets inside is that, after all, the Heidelberg Catechism was right. Even the holiest of men in this life make only small beginnings in the obedience to which we're called. And that apparent sanctity is revealed to be nowhere near as profound or, in the end of the day, appealing as it appears to be. There are those wonderful pictures of Pope Pius XII praying. And then we discover he spent a great deal of time thinking exactly how his hands would photograph. And I'm not saying that's unholy, but it's a kind of mundane concern, especially in the midst of the Second World War, that is kind of shocking. And I think when you scrape things away, you find out that an awful lot of the Roman church had better worry as to whether it's really going to be justified by faith and works, because the works are not that impressive on many levels. There are, of course, impressive things that are done in the Roman church. But yeah, below the surface, there's a seeminess that in the priesthood and in the congregations that I think may well surprise Protestants. Is there something about particularly contemporary evangelicalism that is preparing people to consider Roman Catholicism as the next step in their spiritual journey? Well, a number of things. We've touched on some of them. But something inherent to evangelicalism as a movement. Well, I think it is very easy for the evangelical concern about conversion to really become moral change. And then you're right back where Rome was and what Trent canonized for the Roman Catholic theology. If the essence of real religion is that I am a morally better person than I was and that that's what God is looking at for his final determination, then you're a functional moralist, whether you're in the Roman church or in the evangelical church. In which case, then, you're really only changing clothes. You've already become practically Roman, and you're just changing your ecclesiastical dress. Yeah, you're probably putting on snazzier duds. Last question. What do confessional Reformed people do in the face of what seems to be a growing movement of conversions by evangelicals to Roman Catholicism? And sometimes from within Reformed churches, there have been Presbyterian pastors, and we all know friends, relatives, and friends of friends who've become Roman Catholic. What do we do? What do we say? How do we respond? Well, I think we have to always be willing to look at ourselves and ask where our weaknesses are. Where have we failed to teach sound doctrine? Where have we failed to connect sound doctrine with the Bible so that people see this isn't just our tradition, but it really is what the Bible says? Where have we failed to live the way we ought to live? And having done that, I think we must not abandon the classic Protestant teaching that Rome is a false church. This is not just moving from one church to another. This is a very serious, dangerous undertaking. We have never said there are no true Christians in the Roman church. I don't think we should say that. But we do need to say that Rome itself is a false church, and that to identify with the false church is to put yourself in a context 
where the truth will not be told, not the whole truth. So we have to make clear that for us as Reformed Christians, this is a very serious matter. It's not an incidental matter. And then we have to do what we can to try to get people to think again about Christ as he's presented in the Scripture and put their trust in him. We started with the principles of the Reformation. Let's say someone listening is struggling with the possibility of converting to Rome. Contrast very quickly the Roman gospel, quote-unquote, and the biblical gospel, and we'll end with that. The essential difference is that the Protestant biblical doctrine says, look away from yourself to Christ and find all that you need in him and trust him and rest in him. And by his grace, you will over time be changed in a variety of ways. But whether you're changed a little or whether you've changed a lot, you're safe in him because he has done all for you. And the Roman gospel ends up saying, look deep in yourself and see how much progress you've made. Have you made enough? Make more use of the sacraments. Become a more virtuous person because in the end of the day, you never can really be sure if you've become holy enough. But keep at it. And there's a good chance if you have a priest there when you die that you'll make it. But Protestantism ultimately says, look to Christ. Rome says, look at yourself. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.